Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Who could have predicted that Belgrade Barcelona week could deliver such incredible tennis? But two candidates for the best of three set match of the year took place this weekend. The Barcelona final again uh, with Rafael Nadal and Stefano Tsitsipas was a classic, fantastic uh, and so was the semifinal in Belgrade between Djokovic and Aslan Karatsev, which went three long sets. Karatsev came out the victor. Berrettini ended up taking the title in um, in Belgrade. So congratulations to him. Uh, just uh, marathon matches. If you look at the uh, the match times here, Djokovic and Karatsev, and I'm going to cover both of the ma- these those matches uh, on today's show. That one was three hours, 27 minutes, and Nadal Tsitsipas was three hours, 40 minutes. The record is the Madrid 2009 final between Nadal and Djokovic. It went uh, over four hours, I believe four hours, nine minutes, unlikely to be broken. That is just a, a, an insane uh, an insane amount of time for a best-of-three-set match, and uh with a with a third set tiebreak, nonetheless, this this wasn't like a Olympics match where I believe they don't play the the tiebreak. So, uh, really, just marathons, wars, classics. Can't wait to break them down. Uh, DB4 stat of the week and French Open power rankings coming up at the end of the show. There are some updates to the French Open power rankings. Sometimes this is a week where not much happens, but there is a little bit of shuffling, nothing crazy, nothing major. Let's start with Rafa Nadal for the 12th time, Barcelona champion, still undefeated in finals. Um, and what a what an incredible week this was for him. He starts off, if you watch the first set against Ilya Ivashka, one word comes to mind. Yikes. Yikes was the word. It was, uh, it was really really uh, startling how low his level was. Uh, but you kind of knew that he was going to start to figure things out and uh, got through Ilya Vashka, dropped a set to Kei Nishikori, struggled in the second set against Cam Nori, uh, then benefited from a matchup that he absolutely owns. He got to he got to play PCB, who's a fantastic player. Um, but, you know, Nadal just has his number. Uh, really kind of got his rhythm in that match, began to turn the corner. But you knew that he was going to need to take it up two, three, I don't know, five notches uh, to take down Stefano Tsitsipas in this final. You knew that the, even the, the level that he brought against PCB was not going to be good enough. And just little by little, you saw Nadal get better and better and better this week. And it culminated in his best performance by far uh, in a really gutsy performance in the final against Stefano Tsitsipas, a three-set final, 6-4, 6-7, 7-5. Nadal did have set points in the second set. Tsitsipas had set points in the third set. But before I delve into the match, big picture here. This is a this was a really positive week for Nadal's French Open hopes. He just beat the best player in the field. On clay courts, if you're going by form, and Roland Garros is still three weeks away. He just beat the best player in the field at, what, 85%? This was not Nadal's peak. Uh, He was still dipping in and out 
of how he needs to play his top level. Uh, there were still there were still too many palpitations, um, fluctuations in his level, and that means he's not quite there yet. And he just beat someone who's at least in the top three of his main rivals of, of who he's going to need to play at Roland Garros. He still has three weeks to get better. Still has three weeks to continue his process of rounding into form. The fact that Nadal won this match, really impressive, bodes really well for his French Open hopes. And you got to wonder if you're Tsitsipas, well, if I could not beat him here when he was still a little bit vulnerable, when I got the best out of three set format, I came in having not dropped a set in over the course of the last two tournaments, Monte Carlo, Barcelona final, Tsitsipas hadn't dropped a set. If I couldn't beat Nadal in this situation, how am I going to beat him in Paris? That's the conundrum, right? I was getting major Barcelona 2019 vibes from this match. I actually thought Tsitsipas uh, would, would win it. It wasn't an easy decision, but I did. Uh, team beat beat Nadal in a similar situation. He was the player in the best form. Nadal wasn't quite up to speed yet. Team beat him, won Barcelona. It was different in Paris, though. A, a couple weeks later, 2019 Paris, it was different. Well, now Nadal pulls out the victory. He doesn't even give Tsitsipas that extra uh, sense of belief. Now, for Stefanos, he should also have his, his head up. I thought it was a full circle moment for him. Um, not that Tsitsipas, he's experienced enough. He's beaten Nadal before. But still, the first time he played Nadal, it was a murder in, in Barcelona. It was a final in Barcelona 2018, their first meeting. It was a murder. It was 6-2, 6-1. Either that or the other way around. So, uh, kind of a full circle moment. I don't think Tsitsipas is thinking about that, but maybe he should uh, because he should feel pretty good. He had a match point. The match could have swung either direction. It was a, a game of inches. Nadal grazed the, the net cord on the match point, and uh, it just didn't go Steph's way. But all in all, a really... Obviously, a, an incredibly positive start to clay court season. And he needs, he cannot let this derail him. He cannot let this shake his confidence uh, because he's playing awesome, awesome tennis. He might not be ready. Um, in fact, I don't think he, I don't think he's going to be ready to challenge Nadal at Roland Garros, but that's not really the point. He's still 22 years old. Um, and I, you know, the fact that he can contend. Um, it is important. I made the semifinals last year, and he should be looking to to go far again. All right, let's get into this match. Uh, let me run through it real quick chronologically, and then I'll talk about um, one of the dynamics that I think really swung the match both directions, right? A lot of the times what I do, and I've said this before, but a lot of the times I try to point out ways that the player who won got a distinctive edge in the match, but I don't really think it's appropriate for a match like this. It was so neck and neck, and ultimately, again, I, I want to go through the match chronologically, but ultimately, um, there was no major advantage that either player was able to get over the other um, on a consistent basis. It was, it was a pendulum. Momentum was weird. It was crazy, and it was just a matter of who could get it together at the end. And at five from five all in the third set, Nadal is the one who put the pieces together. A product of uh, a product of experience and belief, belief that comes from having won the event eleven times and just being seasoned and uh, 
basically feeding off the energy off of the home crowd as well, I think helped him. And, uh, you know, just you can't teach what Nadal has in that moment, you know, what Nadal has at an event like this, which is uh, a, an inner belief that really is, uh, again, a product of his success. Tsitsipas was better at the start. After the first two games, Stefanos really um, took a hold in this match. Went up a break and just had every opportunity in the world to go up two breaks. There was a game in this first set where Tsitsipas was already up a break. It was at 1-3. And Nadal double-faulted twice at 1-3. Tsitsipas had his chances to make it a double break and just didn't take them. Uh, didn't play the big points well there. And then, once again... Um, at 4-3, no, it wasn't at 4-3, but the next service game, Nadal has uh, more cha chances for Tsitsipas, and he, he was very passive. He he no longer could, could take his chances when Nadal dropped it short. Uh, he was just tight. He was really tight trying to go up that double break on those break points. He was creating the chances for himself. He was flying through his service games as well. But then, uh, after he kept squandering the chances, it got in his head. And Nadal was able to, to storm back. The 4-all game was, uh, was horrible. It was horrible on both sides. Nadal kept missing forehands that he should make every time. And Tsitsipas was, again, tight and passive. But Nadal ultimately held serve there. And then at 4-5 with Tsitsipas serving, you could just feel that it, it almost felt like an an inevitable Nadal break because Tsitsipas had missed so many opportunities that it, it was ment mentally going to be really challenging for him. And Nadal uh, got that break at 4-5, won the first set 6-4. Then in the second set, Tsitsipas kind of picked up where he left off at the beginning of the first set, started playing a lot more free, uh, more aggressive. Uh, I don't know if he understood what happened in that first set, if he realized that he how passive he played. He's really going to cringe when he looks back. I don't know if, he'll, if he watches his matches back or not, but he's going to cringe when he watches some of those points in the first set back. And uh, Nadal was not at, at his best yet, especially on the forehand. He was still kind of rounding into where he needed to be. In the second set, both players played better. And Nadal found his range on the forehand, but Tsitsipas started coming forward more, Started hitting his backhand better again like he was. He he hit his backhand uh, in excellent in the first couple games of the match. Um, Nadal not passing very well, but I also thought that Tsitsipas was having tons of, of trouble finishing points. And in the same breath, Nadal was winning a lot of points from defensive positions. It was more... It was more Tsitsipas not doing what he needed to do on his front foot um, and losing a lot of points from winning positions. Nadal ends up getting two match points. Tsitsipas saves them both. Really, really uh, credit to him on those two points because he made first serves, uh, a swing volley on the first one, overhead uh, to finish, um, and first strike aggression on both points. It goes to a tie break. Nadal went up a mini break early. And then Tsitsipas strung together a few gorgeous points in a row. And he finally found that balance. Uh, he's, he made some errors at the end of the second set, trying to make it too good, middle of the strings kind of errors. And I thought that was kind of an over-adjustment from how 
Uh, he was not ambitious enough on a lot of his approach shots early on in the set. So it was kind of like a, a Goldilocks situation for him. And he finally found it midway through the tiebreak. And he had a great drop shot finish and a couple of great forehand approach shot finishes. Uh, but then Nadal, with an incredible effort from 4-6 down to, to dig out a drop shot and hit a stretch volley into the open court, gets it back to 6-all so impressively, but ends up double faulting into the middle of the net, and Tsitsipas hits a service winner to win the set. We're all evened up, third set. Both really settled into their patterns and got um, more comfortable. The match became serve dominant. I think both players were playing... Uh, cleaner tennis and closer to, you know, executing what they need to do on a more consistent basis. At 5-all, Tsitsipas began the game with an easy forehand miss where Nadal actually anticipated to the right direction. Tsitsipas saw it out of the corner of his eye and missed it. Then he double faulted. At 15-30, Nadal wins a point that he had no business winning. Just an unbelievable play by Nadal. Miraculous lob uh, on, on the full stretch backhand side. Um, Tsitsipas in this game plays a slew of very strong plus one points off serve, but Nadal from Deuce eventually puts together two solid returns in a row, got one to the backhand first ball error, then got one to the forehand a little bit deeper than he had been previously in the game, another first ball error. So, um, Nadal gets the break. Um... Every single point that Tsitsipas did not begin with a dominant forehand in that game, he lost. Every single one. So Nadal was really finding his mojo from the back of the court here. He was playing with a, a very positive energy. Very positive energy. He was in a dangerous mindset. And at 6-5, he... Um, he does get a little bit tight, makes a forehand unforced error, double faults, 30-all, gets jammed on a volley, and saves break point with, uh, with the, the V attack on the ad side. That's just the play that he, he hits it so well against anyone who gives up ground on the ad side when they return against Nadal. And even some people who take it early can still get burned with this. Uh, but, but V attack... Wide serve, shot into the open court to save that crucial break point. And then at Deuce, it's just a, that special moment. You know, that championship moment, the kind of point that that wins you matches, that wins you these kinds of epic wars. You know, someone needs to come up with this. And Nadal comes up with the point where a determined Stefano Tsitsipas who's digging in and defending as hard as he possibly can, and it just didn't matter because... Nadal came up with just four, three or four maximum power thumping ground strokes off both. Uh, it started with a beautiful backhand, and then it was forehands from there. Uh, won that point at deuce, and then he pulled Tsitsipas wide to the forehand, and, and Stefanos missed a forehand. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think in a match like that, it's appropriate to kind of go chronologically. You could see that there were a lot of swings, a lot of pendulums. Now, most of that, to me, was about how well was Nadal able to break down the Stefano Tsitsipas backhand. So that's the tactic that I want to go in depth on here. 
there are three ways that Nadal attacks the Stefanos Tsitsipas backhand. Or not three ways, actually. Three scenarios. That's why it's such a huge part of the match. In fact, my uh, co-host on on three, my my other podcast, uh, Amy Lundy, she actually charted this. And it was in, it was in the mid-60 percentile. Um, how often Nadal would hit into the backhand third of the court, including the serve. It was in the sixty per, mid-60s. That's a lot. Uh, so Nadal is constantly playing through the Stefano Tsitsipas backhand. And I can't say it worked. I can't say it didn't work. The match actually swung with the pattern. And I want to get in, into more depth. What I mean by that is... When, when it wasn't working, Tsitsipas was getting the better of the play. When it was working, Nadal was. It was because uh, it's just, it's such a frequent pattern when these two play. Um, but there are three scenarios, getting back to what I was saying, three scenarios where Nadal uh, looks to utilize that. Nadal searching for the short ball in trading. That's a neutral rally. How am I going to get that short ball? I'm going to get it with, um, by, by attacking Tsitsipas' backhand trying to break his contact point on the backhand side. The second scenario, Nadal searching for the short ball on the first serve. Pretty self-explanatory. First serve into Tsitsipas' backhand, looking for the short ball off of that. It's, it's mostly all to set up the forehand. The third scenario is less offensive. It's actually defensive. Nadal searching for neutrality on defense. So it's using the righty backhand as an escape valve. It's hoping that if I can get it to the backhand, I can get this point back to neutral. So those are the three scenarios. In trading, off the first serve, and in neutralizing. Um, and the way that played out would would differ. So I think the, the biggest thing is trading, probably. Um... And there's a couple of things in Tsitsipas's favor that make this a difficult matchup for Nadal. One, Tsitsipas, as I've talked about, has developed decent strength and decent power. So he's able to get somewhat of a—well, okay, it allows him to actually back up and get wait for the ball to drop into his strike zone and then rip it from way back behind the baseline. Instead of a player who maybe isn't strong enough and has to play further up on the baseline, they may have no choice but to take it a little bit earlier, and that might cause the ball to uh, kick up above the shoulders. If it does kick up above the shoulders, that also comes back to strength. And again, as Tsitsipas gets stronger and stronger, he's able to get more on the ball. He's able to protect the backhand even when it bounces above his shoulders. I do think that there is a breaking point there for him. I don't think he's the strongest in the world. I don't think he he matches like Stan Wawrinka and how good good Stan is above his shoulders. Um, I don't think he he's quite there yet at all. I don't know that he ever will be. Probably not. Um, but he does have decent strength at shoulder height that allows him to trade from up there and do a decent job of it. He's also six four. And that's something that team can't say, and Federer can't say, and Vavrinka can't say. Um, no one really has his height, and that is a big advantage for him. It makes it a little bit harder for Nadal to get the ball up above the strike zone. But it's not just about Tsitsipas. Um, it's also about what Nadal does. And I felt that 
when Nadal was having most success, and it was an adjustment he made midway through the first set, he was subtracting pace and adding height, just hitting a little bit heavier on the loop. And instead of focusing on driving the ball a little bit flatter across court, I think that Tsitsipas was handling the backhand actually beautifully when it was coming in faster and lower. And when Nadal was was giving him that type of cross-court forehand, Tsitsipas was very comfortable. And that's kind of why I thought the match was strange at times because I thought, for example, in the first set, there were a couple times where Nadal actually lost confidence on the forehand hit it spinnier, safer, slower to the Tsitsipas backhand. And instead of that being a problem, it actually helped him. It actually got him back in the set. And I don't know that he was doing it intentionally, but eventually I think that he started to uh, to feel that out a little bit more. Uh, but probably not as much as he would have liked. And I thought that Nadal uh, still was driving it a little bit too flat at times. At times. Uh, but that is something that that fluctuated. And when Nadal subtracted pace and added height, I thought he had a lot of success in coaxing the short ball. It doesn't finish the point outright. There were a couple times where it drew an error, but uh, it doesn't finish the point outright. But the off-speed was was uh, creating the short balls off of Tsitsipas's backhand. If I were to pinpoint uh, the, the moment in the match where that was working most often, I would say the second set. I'd say midway through the first, maybe, but also mostly the second set, finding a ton of short balls off of Tsitsipas's backhand. Um, a lot in the first set, actually. Probably more than, uh, than, than midway late in the second set again. Again, it was weird. I mean, the match, the match uh, took a lot of turns. First serve... Um, you know, I thought that Tsitsipas did a pretty good job here. And a lot of that is because of the, the court. You know, it's just kind of how it works on clay. Um, and I thought that the return, for the most part, with the exception of points periods in the second set, the return was decent. But there were also, I think, long periods of time where Nadal had the, the most reliable, the most reliable pattern in the entire match which I think is a big comfort for him. I think it helps him a lot. The fact that he can pull Tsitsipas off the court on the ad side and open up with the forehand. And I don't think Stefanos, I thought it was very rare that Tsitsipas was actually getting it, uh, hitting a high, heavy return to the Nadal backhand to get back into the point. I thought that was rare. Um, so he just had to hit it deep enough down the middle to back up Nadal. And... I would say Nadal won a lot of points on the ad side hitting the wide serve. Searching for neutrality on defense. Um, at the beginning of the first set, it was key for Tsitsipas that he was uh, finding the offense off of the backhand. But I thought more and more as the match went on, Nadal was finding the escape valve in the backhand. So... Uh, that's just the dynamic that I that I think is very interesting when these two play, and in within that dynamic, I don't think either player was able to really tussle an advantage out of each other. That's why it was such a close match. That's why it was scarcely decided, is because um, Tsitsipas at times was protecting his backhand really really well, and then Nadal at times was was breaking it down. 
And it was just a matter of, um, again, at, at what point in the match were you uh, were you talking about in terms of some of these dynamics? And that would decide uh, how it was being played out. So uh, surface matters, right? Court surface. How Nadal, the manner in which Nadal is hitting the ball mattered. Tsitsipas's execution on the short backhand did he have it firing down the line? Uh, was he too nervous? Was he too passive? Which was the case at, at certain points. Uh, he would have won the first set. If he had his confident backhand for the entirety of the first set, he would have won the first set. Um, but but he lost that, right? Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. What a match. Tremendous. Let's go on to uh, the Belgrade semifinal. Djokovic Karatsev. I'm going to be a little bit shorter on that. I'm really going to skip ahead and and go macro here. But um, Aslan Karatsev is the real deal. When it comes to offense off the ground, offense from the baseline, Aslan Karatsev is the total package. He is the realist of real deals. He takes the ball early. He finds angles. He has a lethal swing volley that I can't wait to break down at some point in more detail because it's a fantastic shot. Uh, but the the angles that he finds out off both wings, the the power that he generates off of the racket speed that he uh, that he possesses on his forehand gives him just just an incredible package of offense on clay. It's all predicated around, um, again, angles and taking the ball early. And when you when you have those two things, when you wrap those two things in a package, when you use those things in combination, uh, it, it's so hard for the other player to actually recover into the middle of the court. They're constantly playing catch-up. And in this match, Djokovic was on the back foot the entire time. Uh, the game that Novak put together at at 4-5 um, was one of the most magical games that you'll see. And Djokovic with, with just, just counter-punching out of this world, absolute magician, uh, sorcery by Novak Djokovic. But nonetheless, counter-punching, right? It's coming from the defense. It's flipping points from, from defense to offense. And uh, Djokovic was getting pushed around this entire match. Uh, he had, let's see, I think he had 27 break opportunities and Karatsev saved 23. And on these break points, Djokovic was uh, employing a tactic that is not out of the ordinary for him, but really uh, forcing his opponent to come up with the goods, right? Just asking the questions, Ding up. And Karatsev was up to the task again and again and again and again to the point where it 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 felt very uh it felt almost very redundant but also miraculous miraculous that Karatsev time and time again had the answers and was able to hit through Djokovic's defense but if you can also see what I'm getting at here Novak was not in control at no point did the match really to the fullest extent feel like it was on Novak Djokovic's racket. Um, I have some some match charting data, courtesy of uh, Tennis Abstract. Uh, forehand ground stroke winners 
forehand ground stroke winners by Djokovic in, again, a, a long three-set match. Ten. Excuse me, nine. Nine winners off the ground with the forehand in a long three-set match. He had more off the backhand. He had 11 off the backhand. I don't think that should happen. I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, the reality is Djokovic did not have his serve, and he did not have his forehand. Did not have those two things. And it was so, so hard for him to find any offense without his serve or his forehand. And Karatsev was, uh, look, he was defending really well with Djokovic, but Karatsev, he is so darn good off of his front foot. Novak would have beaten most players by, I mean, the vast majority of players here, but he needed to find some offense against Aslan Karatsev. You have to make him move. You have to make him defend. That's where he's a little bit vulnerable. If you're going to let him attack you, um, his offense is as potent as it comes. But uh, nine nine forehand winners for Djokovic. It's not. It's a little bit concerning. Uh, just to compare, Karatsev, 32. 32 forehand winners off the ground. If you're going to look at percentages, so total forehands hit versus how many were winners off the ground, 12% of Karatsev's forehands were winners. 4% of Novak's. So if you do the multiplication there, um, you know, Karatsev, uh, four times more likely, right? No, three, sorry, I'm not a math major. Three times more likely than Djokovic to hit a forehand winner. And I think that kind of paints the picture where where Novak just wasn't wasn't creating much, wasn't able to create much. And here's what happened in the match. Karatsev was in the third set. Again, magical, magical second set win by Djokovic with just some of the best defense you'll see ever. But in the third set, Karatsev was serving first. Always. And Novak kept digging into Karatsev's service games and doing tons of road work. Running, 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 running. And just not quite getting that break. Not quite getting over the finish line. And then by the time it was Novak's turn to serve, he did not have 100% capacity. In fact, he had much less than 100% capacity in his legs and in his lungs. And I felt early on in the third set that was going to be a problem for Novak. It was going to be a big disadvantage that he was serving second because he was doing so much running on every single return game. And sure enough... Uh, he holds for three all, or sorry, Karatsev holds for three all and makes Novak do a lot of running. And then Djokovic really uh, taps out both, you know, physically and mentally for a couple of games there. He has to check out. He just can't take it anymore. And he said after the match, he was dizzy. I, I think he was dizzy from running two marathons on the court. You know, that's what I think he was dizzy from. And I, I just don't think you can take any credit away from Karatsev. I think uh, it was inevitable that that Novak was going to break down physically because he was doing too much hard work. Um, and that's what happens when uh, you don't have balance in your game. Um, and it's also what happens when Karatsev is just putting on a, a masterclass of, of precise, st sustained aggression from the baseline. He, he never goes to net either. It's incredible how potent he can be in terms of uh, finding ways to finish points against a guy who covers the court as well as Novak Djokovic from the baseline. So uh, it was uh, it was Djokovic really just losing his 
physical capacity eventually in the third set. And then he had one last wind and gave Karatsev a lot of trouble trying to serve it out at 5-4. But Aslan just snuck over the finish line and um, and won it. It was a really long match. It it, it obviously it put Berrettini in a great position to win the final. And Karatsev didn't really get up. Uh, I, you know, the, the finals were happening at the same time. I was paying more attention to, to uh, Nadal. But uh, it, it put Karatsev in, obviously, a very tough position. Lost the first set against Berrettini, 6-1. Ended up going to a third set tie break. Uh, Karatsev looking a little bit sluggish. Berrettini looking awesome in the same breath. And uh, Berrettini is a totally different matchup. Um, couldn't be more opposite. Because Berrettini was actually making Karatsev play some defense, taking the, the racket out of his hands a little bit with his forehand. Um, and he won that third set tiebreak very easily. Uh, real quick, congrats to Matteo Berrettini. Huge. Coming off an injury and coming off of a disappointing year, this is a big one for Matteo Berrettini. And I felt very bad for him because Berrettini is one of those rare players who's much better on clay and grass. He's just not... the He's not a hardcore player for some reason. And... If you look at the calendar in 2020, it was a hard court season. Most of the clay court season axed, grass court season axed. So Berrettini was just kind of stuck on his least favorite surface for all of 2020. And uh, good to see him coming off injury, especially impressive to capture this title. Uh, a big one for him. All right. Let us move on now to the DB4 stat of the week. For more tennis insight, visit www.db4tennis.com. Dot com. All right, we've had a couple of uh, young Masters finalists, Stefano Tsitsipas um, and Yannick Sinner in Monte Carlo uh, a week ago. So let's take a look at players who reached their first Masters finals uh, before the age of 20. Tsitsipas uh, was... Tsitsipas actually reached his first Masters final on his 18th birthday. Uh, he played Nadal in Canada. Michael Chang holds the record. Um, he was the youngest ever to reach a Masters final. It was also in Canada. Here's the list. Andre Agassi, Michael Chang, Marit Safin, Pete Sampras, Andy Roddick, Nadal, Djokovic, Andre Medvedev. All of those players made at least one slam final. The only player on the list, the only player who reached a Masters final who did not end up making a Grand Slam final in their career, Masters final under 20 years of age, that is, is uh, Richard Gazquet. So it obviously bodes well for Sinner and Tsitsipas to make a Masters final before the age of 20. Oldest guy to do it, by the way, Roger Federer, 37 years old. If you look at the groups of players who have done it over the age of 30, actually a lot of first-timers, Ivan Lubacic, David Ferrer, John Isner, uh, Fabio Fanini are a couple. Uh, so uh, Agassi, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic are, are also in there, but um, some players do it over 30 for their first time. All right. Thank you for that from our friends at DB4 Tennis. And now let us let us move on to the French Open Power Rankings. Um, the week of April 25th. For the second week in a row, it says the wrong thing. And I know I said it was, uh, it said March last week. I don't know what's wrong with me, guys. I don't know. Um, let me just start here. 
Roger Federer, should he be included? Should he not be included? Here's what I've decided. I do not want to put him in before he plays because that's just not the point of the French Open Power Rankings. The point of the French Open Power Rankings is to track the players and their level heading into the French. However, Roger Federer will play Geneva, which means Federer will be inserted into the final edition of the French Open Power Rankings. Okay, here we go. Number 10, new face on the list. It is Aslan Karatsev breaking into the French Open Power Rankings. I've also added a new feature, my friends. Next four out. These are the players who are knocking on the door, not quite in the top 10. Um, I'm going to leave Roger Federer in there as a placeholder. Matteo Berrettini, fresh off the title. Pablo Carrena Busta, tremendous start to clay court season for the Spaniard. Uh, won the title in Marbella um, and lost to Nadal after making going all the way to the semifinal here in Barcelona. So uh, really, really good by PCB. The man who beat Pablo Carina Busta in Monte Carlo, that would be Casper Ruud. And he was in the top 10 last week. I have to bump him out because of Aslan Karatsev. It's not Ruud's fault. He did not play. But given Karatsev's recent track record and a recent Grand Slam semifinal, a win over Novak Djokovic last week, I have to give him the edge over Kasparud, Ruud. He bumps him out of the French Open power rankings. And at number 10 goes Aslan Karatsev. At number 9, Daniil Medvedev. Some people in the comments told me he should not be in the power rankings, folks. I disagree. I think he should be in the power rankings. I don't think... I, I, I'm sorry, but he's still a dangerous player. And uh, he... Obviously, the results don't back that up. But... I believe they will very, very soon. I, he's not hes not great. That's why he's number nine. That's not very high. All of his peers that are similar to his level are above him, but I don't think he should be out of the top 10 here. Uh, but let's see. Maybe others will, uh, will overtake him because he already slipped down one spot to number nine. At number eight, Yannick Sinner. You got to move up Yannick Sinner after another very impressive week by the young Italian. He takes out Roberto Bautista Agut again in straight sets, and then he beats Andre Rublev. He should be feeling very, very confident, and I like Yannick Sinner right now at number eight. Um, at number seven is Andre Rublev. Uh, I really, I throw out his most recent result in the garbage. I don't know why he played last week. The man had to be exhausted. Even Kasper Ruud took the week off. I don't know why Rublev played. He lost. I don't really care. Number six, Alexander Zverev. We're kind of waiting on him. Let's see how he looks when he comes back from uh, his uh, COVID-19 um, diagnosis. Diego Schwartzman at number five hasn't been convincing so far. Schwartzman's on the hot seat, has to make some noise or else he, he could be booted out of this number five spot. But of course, he's riding the momentum of a semifinal result recently at Roland Garros. Uh, so we will continue to monitor Diego Schwartzman, who lost to Pablo Carrena Busta in the quarterfinals this week in, in uh, Barcelona. So not a terrible result. He gets to stay at number five. At number four is Dominic Team, still inactive, still waiting to see what Team does when he comes back. Number three, Novak Djokovic. Um, nothing really uh, changed from last week because I put Stefano Tsitsipas at number two, and the question was going to be how long could Tsitsipas hold off Novak Djokovic because Djokovic has a superior track record compared to Tsitsipas when it comes to. Uh, 
Obviously, the results on the clay. Djokovic even owns the head-to-head from last year's semifinal. But with another strong showing, Tsitsipas maintains the number two spot in the French Open power rankings. And Rafa Nadal, he's back at pole position. Well, he's not really back at pole position. He was always in pole position. Uh, But now he's back in the winner's circle. And there is absolutely no doubt about who is number one in the French Open power rankings as of April 25th, 2021. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.